Hey, it's Mitch Goldman. It's Deep Focus. This is part two of a banger recorded August 7th, 2023. Stephen Bernstein back in the studio with me along with Scotty Hard. And we are, oh, oh we are deep in it. Miles Davis, Fillmore East, 1970. If you did not hear part one, I really recommend you go and listen to that one first. But uh, you could pick any which way you want to hear it. And I just do want to point out, I don't know if you're going to notice this. There might be, you might hear a little bit of a warble in our voices in the interview in the beginning. Um, it's a tech issue in the recording. I uh, hope it's not too distracting. But you should know the music very shortly after the music starts. That is a completely clean recording from another source. So uh, there won't be any issues with that. But, um, well, what can I say? Here it is. Enjoy. out like that that's how it stops it's so painful you're listening to wkcr fm new york wkcr hd wkcr.org maybe you're at 89.9 fm here in new york city or maybe you're listening to the deep focus podcast available everywhere it's on that phone in your pocket right now on your podcasting app you can subscribe to deep focus all free ad free we don't even have a tip cup or anything. You no, can just, it's, it's on the worldwide information superhighway. Giving it away. And uh, you can, uh, yeah, and you'll, if you go there, you'll find hundreds of other episodes, some with my guest tonight, Stephen Bernstein, on them. And in the future, you'll hear stuff with Scotty Hart, also in the studio. You're listening to, you're saying, wait a minute, which uh, Live Miles Davis album was that we are listening to? No album. That is something from the WKCR archives. The date's March 6th, 1970. It's Miles Davis's first time playing at the Fillmore East. Uh, and he hadn't played the Fillmore West yet either. And, um, well, let me ask you guys, St Stephen, how's this, as a band leader, as a trumpeter, how's this music striking you? Insane. Miles is playing so strong, and you can hear... And that's funny because I was thinking, unfortunately, we didn't get to hear the very end. Does the tape just cut off? Is that what yeah, happened? It just kind of rolls out. Like well, that. I mean, you hear him cue that last phrase, and it's just so clear. And I realized, you know, and I don't know where it came first, but you know how Don Cherry would do the collages, and Don would play like a little melody, and the whole band would go move to the next thing. And, you know, Miles is doing that. Like they're, you know, they're burning so hard, and he just plays that melody. And when he plays that melody, boom, he goes down, bang, everyone just like, and probably maybe played the theme after that, I don't know. 
but it was really interesting. Two solos back, he played a what we call a a, a lip trill. We go ay 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 ay, which I never. Miles would do finger trills. Lip trills very hard on trumpet. You know, I mean, it's only big band trumpet players do. Not so much part of the the the, the bebop rep. You know, something like Harry James would do. Um, my trumpet teacher told me the whole story with it was that it was Louis Armstrong started it. And Louis Armstrong had that very intense vibrato. And he said, my teacher, Jimmy Maxwell, said to me, because uh, they all, his whole thing was, he was a great lead trumpet player at uh, NBC staff and with Benny Goodman and whatnot. And he said, well, everyone used that as a device. You hear it in all these, you know, Count Basie chops, when they, when they go, sure. right, that kind of stuff. He said, well, Louis Armstrong's, Vibrato would get so intense, and he played so hard that the note would go bounce to the next harmonic. So it was almost like a mistake that, you know what I'm saying? It's something that happened with the intensity of his air, which then, of course, being Louis Armstrong, he just made music out of it, because the trumpet didn't really, that wasn't part of what trumpets did, really. Uh, not that way, at least. And it became part of, like, but Miles, I never heard Miles play a lip trill on him there, and he plays, like, a really strong lip trill. I'm like, man, he's playing so strong on this, you know. And again, it's before the wah-wah pedal, so everything he's doing, he's doing with his chops, his air, and, uh, and yeah, and you can hear him, and I assume, you know, we don't see it, but I assume he's giving a lot of those cues when those, those abrupt edits are, like, you know, hand cues, or just turning around and looking at the band, but there's a lot of, you know, there's not like endless jams. They get to a certain point and it peaks and it's very compositional. It doesn't meander. Yeah. And uh, something we were talking about a little bit off mic, not to go too deep into the fact that legendarily his traditional audience did not get, they, they were, they were re revulsed by this music they were horrified i mean you know the, the reports of what uh his older audience for you know his first quintet let's say his people were just scandalized by this music which um what were some of the things that people didn't quite and maybe still don't quite get right about what this band was doing and what they how it worked on yeah, stage well, i think stanley crouch is still not over it <laughs> except he's not on the planet anymore well, he's still... But, he yeah, he was still <laughs> not not enthused by it. But I guess, it, you know, it was kind of like the whole Dylan at the Folk Fest, like, going electric. Like, people just thought it was blasphemic. But, like, you know, Miles... I mean, that was why he's always been one of my biggest inspirations is because he was always trying to do something different. And he was, you know, never... You know, rarely looking back at anything that he did in the past he was just forward 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 and you know i don't think it has anything to do with selling out and you know musically i think at that time you hear a guy like Jimi hendrix doing ridiculous shit like i mean I don't think we can't really imagine what it would be like. You know, it's just kind of like, you know, what Coltrane was doing on the saxophone. You know, it, in some ways it came out of a lot of things. And Hendrix obviously comes out of blues, but he was just taking things beyond that. Like, you know, how could you not be if you were listening, you know, as Captain Beefheart said, if you got ears, you got to listen. 
Like, you know, <laughs> you know, if you heard that, you know, he wanted he wanted a piece of that excitement because, you know, what 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 more was it than that? It was just purely exciting and revolutionary and incredible. And, and it was. And here's something I like to tell people. People you know, talk about jazz music and, you know, being a guy who's, you know, and again, like I don't adhere to any world. I, I appreciate the fact that jazz musicians accept me as part of their community, but I'm just Stephen Bernstein, professional musician. That's my gig. And um, there's only 12 notes, right? And most people, on a lot of music, you can only use like seven of them. I mean, music, my music, we use them all. Playing music, you use seven notes. So it's not that many in notes. In those in-between. <laughs> okay, well, don't talk about the... It's funny because you were talking about how Tia saw the possibilities and everything. Except the slide trumpet. trumpet. <laughs> no, no, no. He, he, he saw the possibility of it being used as a lampshade. <laughs> that, was his, that was his quote. Yeah, Tia said, man, you should make a lampshade out of that thing. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing with that thing there. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway... um. And in jazz, of course, we do use all the notes. and But the thing that changes, like, you have to understand, like, people think Louis Armstrong and Clifford Brown are different things. But if you look at the notes, it's all the same notes. There's really no notes that Clifford Brown uses that Louis Armstrong doesn't use. There's notes Dizzy Gillespie uses that Louis Armstrong doesn't use. But there's not notes. There's all the same notes. But what's the difference? Well, Louis Armstrong... You have Zooty Singleton playing drums, or Sid Catlett, or Baby Dodds. So you're playing along with that drum beat, which requires a certain kind of rhythm. With Max Roach, you have Max, I mean, with Max Roach. With Clifford Brown, you have Max Roach playing drums. So that's a different kind of rhythm, requires a certain kind of velocity. But it's all the same notes. And now you have Miles with Jack DeJanette doing that, man, what we just heard, which is like, talk about revolutionary. And I think we talked uh, talked about this when I came in. Jack had been playing the film more for three years with Charles Lloyd, so I think Jack was like in home territory. I, I mean, I just can't believe what he's playing on the drums on this. It's just mind blowing. But Miles, okay. So what do you do? How do you play the trumpet when Jack's doing that on the drums? And that's what we're hearing there. You're hearing Jack. To me, what I'm really hearing almost more than anything is Miles responding to like the ferocity of Jack DeJanet. Miles talks about this very date in his autobiography. Oh, wow. And he says that after he, so he recorded, it's funny, he recorded, um, Bitches Brew was recorded the very same days as Woodstock Festival. They recorded 52nd Street at uh, Columbia Studios. And after that, Clive Davis introduced him to Bill Graham. And Miles actively aggressively wanted to court that audience he knew who they were and he wanted them to get his music and he talks about going in to these Fillmore dates with that intention he took a pay cut to do it which is apparently something he never did right? yeah yeah he got yeah i think what I saw, he got fifteen hundred dollars to do this gig. I think it said twelve hundred or something, and his usual fee was five thousand. Yeah. So, so check this out. So we were talking about earlier culture. There's, yeah, music, 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 music is cool. We all love music, but what's really cool 
is culture. And if you can find out a way to have your music reflect the culture and then even better, change the culture, that's when you're getting somewhere. And Miles saw the culture changing. He didn't want to sit that back there and be like, why would I be part of the old? Why would you want to be part of the old culture? The culture is changing. If your eyes are open, you say, the culture changes. Let's go. Let's get Jack DeJeanette and let's get to work, you know? So what's happening on stage? How, what's he doing to court that audience, do you think? How's his music changing? How's he trying to bring them in? I mean, it's not just about having the most brain-shattering solos, even though all these guys are monster soloists and everything. What, what else is he doing with the music? Well, he's redefining it rhythmically, and which is, you know, you find that that drummer to do that and 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 play up more of a pocket like that, and, and aggressive. The music's very aggressive, and I think maybe that was one thing that, you know, was his distillation of like rock was like it's got to be aggressive, you know. I mean, there's vaguely he they do that standard. Um, I fall in love too easily. I fall in love too easily, which is kind of brings brings it down. But it's in, still in, totally in the first out. Set. But it's completely out. Yeah, and that's again the funny thing when people when you listen to it, like how out and how hard they're playing, and people say, "Oh, Miles is going commercial." It's like Miles going. It's like Scott said, if he's going commercial, he he has played kind of blue his whole life. That would be commercial. That's like best selling record in the world. Right. But, I think he's also uh, using. The flow of energy. Yes, I think there. That's something these people are responding to. Absolutely, man. I, I think he's kind of taking the energy off the crowd. The uh, Fillmore East, in particular, had a uh, it was legendarily very intimate between the artist and audience, and I think he's tuning them up, tightening them up, letting them rip, pulling them back. I don't know how much he's getting from the audience, though, because I think that, as the British would say, I'm sure they were all gobsmacked. Sure like just sitting there with their mouths on the floor, yeah, like going, "What that. is this?" Because yeah. I mean, it's just so intense and so elemental, kind of in a way that that I'm sure people weren't used to used to that. Someone who's going to see Neil Young or Steve Miller, or not yeah, you know, I mean, that's a whole other thing. So I think he's. He's pushing a lot of energy towards the audience, and probably by the end he's getting something back. But I don't imagine that they were going nuts for him. At uh, you know, I don't think he was getting a lot off them, except well, he thought he was. Uh, yeah. He says in the autobiography, he says that he won them over. He went in to do that, and and he achieved that. Well, that's different than getting huge adulation from the crowd and feeding off that energy. I mean, I guess, but he he has kind. Of, you know, Miles always had sort of a. And not a necessarily a negative energy, but kind of like watch me do this, or you just try to stop me, kind of thing. So he's 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 proving himself here. He's he's do, it, it's so good and it's so intense that he's like, how can you can't not like this, or he's, you can't not have some kind of reaction to this. And I want to say that there was something at the at the very beginning of this last fourteen minute segment of music we played where Scott pointed out, and I wasn't here either. It's Chick and 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 I think I don't know if Jack's playing. It might be just Chick and Ayerto, but there's another voice in there. It kind of sounds like weird left hand, and it's not. It's it's Dave Holland, and you said what's he playing through? It, through a fuzz and a wah wah. 
Yeah, and because when I first heard it, I thought, you know, it sounded like what Modesky used to do on the clav, right? And like a real blown out clav thing. And then you realize, like, no, Chick's playing with both hands. There's no way he's playing another. And then I'm like, that's bass. Oh my god, that's so crazy what he's yeah, doing. And it's and we get to that point where we're listening hard and. It was so out. And then I said, wait a second. When did Dave Holland and Chick Corea circle? Right. Exact yep. same period. So it suddenly kind of moves away from the Miles Electric thing into this for a little four-minute section. And it's really Chick and Dave doing something that I don't hear on other Miles records. And, um, man, it is out. And what what's really out is what Dave is playing. I mean... And he's just so in there with Tick. You can tell they've been improvising because he's just, whatever. Like he's just right in there, man. That is some heavy, beautiful improvisation. And, and it's, it's ra it's quite textural too. It's just not like, oh, I'm playing this note here, or this, I'm playing this scale, running this over this chord. It's right. not, it's not based on anything harmonic at all. It's pure improvising. Well, I'll say one more thing I just realized because I don't want to get too harmonic about music here, but we know that Miles came from bebop, as did Chick. Um, though Chick, obviously, you know, was another generation. And, of course, Dave Holland came up playing, you know, trap music and bebop. And uh, Jack was a bebop piano player, modern, you know. But Miles was a bebopper. I mean, Miles was stone cold bebopper. And... Is this like mild thing you always hear goes weebomb? Like, I always hear that. And always in my mind, it was always like a yeah, major, minor root. But then I heard it today, I heard it a little different. I realized, no, this is still the diminished Dizzy thing. Yeah. This is like Dizzy. This is like what he got from Dizzy, but now he's shaving off a bunch of stuff, and this is what's left. For this, to, to, so it can contextualize, not with like the kind of rhythm Dizzy would use, but with all this madness that <laughs> Jack Tijanette's laying down. And I realized, right, it's all that same. It's still bebop language, like it's bebop. Well, also, you know, yeah. Well, wasn't uh, didn't Miles say that it was Dizzy who told him that he had to learn to play piano? Oh yeah. And he, I seem to remember, I don't know about at this period of time, but he would usually. When I used to go see him, he would always have a keyboard. He didn't but play a keyboard in this period. No. Yeah, probably no. No, not, but he not did in, later in the yeah, early seventies. I'm telling you, I'm just telling yeah, you, yeah. man. I'm telling you, you just believe me. Okay, just believe me, bro. That's why you're here. The show's called Deep Focus. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman. Stephen Bernstein in the studio with me. Scotty Hard. We're listening to Miles Davis live on release recordings from March 1970. Yes, and one thing I just have to say because we talked about all the other musicians is. Uh, it's interesting what you mentioned about Wayne's playing, and you do hear a lot of like foreshadowing of the Weather Report stuff. The way he played, like you can hear in, in 1970, like some of these kind of crazy. I call them like the runs to nowhere, where he starts going up the soprano sax, and like just it just feels like it goes, and then like hits a cloud and stops, and like you hear it here. It's like wow, man. Well, we so if you're just joining us. You really blew it. You're really just so late to the game. But, 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 we're going to make it up to you. Uh, we're approaching the midpoint of the show. And what you heard was the first opening set of uh, this show at the Fillmore East. And the rest of the bill, we said at the very beginning of the show, was a Steve Miller band came on 
second and Neil Young and Crazy Horse doing their first, as far as I can see, the first gig ever was the headline act. And we heard the first set. There's a whole other set. They clear the house and bring in another audience. And we've got the second set for you we're going to hear as well. And, yeah, they really, uh, you'll hear and you can compare. And um, it kind of feels like uh, the, the as wild as that set got, the chains kind of come off in the second set. I think they are hitting even harder. Wayne yeah. in particular. Um, Chick, too. But everybody's. Strap in for set two. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Do we, uh, we were going to, you said you wanted to, did you have a little, you being the Bay Area bandit that you are, some Bill Graham insights, perhaps? Well, you know, just, I don't know if this generation, and obviously our generation, understands what Bill Graham did. So Bill was a, Funny, because we thought of him as a New Yorker growing up in the Bay Area, because I had a lot of friends who worked for him in high school. Like, that was a good high school job. You could go work for Bill Graham. But, you know, his whole story is that, of course, he escaped the Nazis. This guy walked with his sister and a nun and maybe 80, 90 orphans from Germany to Spain in the winter. What? Oh, yeah. And, and, That's a and, long walk. And, yeah, and two-thirds of the kids died. And then they had to get to the United States. Bill Graham was another kind. Like, we didn't know that about him growing up. We just, we just thought he was a tough New Yorker because he was tough. And everyone in the Bay Area when I grew up was a hippie or a Black Panther. You know, that's just the way it was. And he was, you didn't have a lot of tough Jewish New Yorkers. You know, they, this cat was no bull, but he loved jazz, being a New Yorker that age. You know, the same age as my dad, basically, you know. And... um. They loved jazz. That was their music. And he loved, and he loved Latin music. And he loved blues. He loved black music. Bam, as my good friend Nicholas Paint and now everyone else says, you know. And um, so he would have not just Miles, he'd have Ray Charles, he'd have Tito Puente, he'd have Ross on Roland Kirk, as well as all the great blues musicians. And he really opened a lot of people's minds was all constantly doing these kind of things, constantly. Like, that was, like, part of his mission. And he was a really special guy that way. He and Miles had a great mutual admiration and mutual uh, fear, (laughs) respect. Yeah, I mean, he was was tough. That's what Miles said about him. He was tough. Yeah. Because imagine it, look, I know something about, and Scott knows something about not being afraid of things. When you've had to face certain things, you just don't have fear anymore. And can you imagine? He doesn't have fear. He didn't have fear of anything. Dude, he walked as a kid and watched the other children die and got to the United States and survived. So you're not, not, not going to be scared of much. <laughs> no. Yeah, there's some, there's some great stuff in, uh, if you haven't read Miles Davis' autobiography. Or Bill Graham's autobiography. Or Bill Graham's autobiography. Both are great. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Miles tells a really funny story about... Um, showing up for a gig it was somewhere upstate or in Massachusetts and they had some some traffic or some issues. He got there really late. He, he decided to drive his Ferrari up there and he gets there and Bill Graham's standing outside waiting for him. He's late and uh, he said, um, Miles says he pulls up and he gets out of the car and looks at Bill Graham and he goes, did you think someone else was going to get out of that car? <laughs> <laughs> he said Bill Graham cracked up. 
tension's broken. Let's go do the show. Right. But yeah, they were. Uh, he, he talks about kind of going toe to toe a little bit with Bill Graham. Oh, yeah. And obviously, Bill Graham did create this opportunity for him, and thank goodness he did. That's right. The show's called Deep Focus. You're listening to WKCR. If you miss part of the show and you want to hear the whole thing, get on the podcast going up next week. Uh, but we are bringing it to you live here uh, August 7th, 2023. Stephen Bernstein, my guest in the studio. Scotty Hard here with us. And um, we're going to hear the second set. So it's, once again, it's March 6th, 1970. Uh, the second night of this was released uh, 10 years ago or so. Yeah. yeah. Recently when you were as old as us. Yes. Uh, practically, practically yesterday. Um, but this one's not released. I don't know why. It's, man, it's it's smoking. So once again, uh, you want to tell us the group, uh, members of the group again? You've got to run it down, who we're listening to. Oh, it's Miles. Wayne Shorter on saxophone, Miles Davis on trumpet, Chakria on keyboards, Jack Dejanet on drums and um, Dave Holland on electric bass with the fuzz and the wah-wah and the lots of yeah. notes. Is Airto on yeah. there too? Yeah, yeah. Airto's there doing a lot of quicker. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, I, I heard somebody pl- going nuts on the flexitone. And I oh, thought, yeah, that, right, the flexitone. And I thought, there. oh, Jack's got a flexitone. I didn't realize that there was there was percussion on it because yeah. you can't really hear much percussion. Yeah. Well, you mainly, you mainly hear quicker, and but also Airto talked about this. Am I allowed to say this? Yeah. Um, well, he said sometimes, because I knew Airto from hanging out, sometimes he said, you know, you get to a certain point, um, if you're in a cer- certain psychic zone, especially in the 60s and 70s, you might just be sitting there for a while listening, not able to move your arms too much. <laughs> and I think he said that sometimes with Miles it was like that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was the case that night, but he, he said that. I think he said that on the Bitches Brew documentary even. I haven't seen that. Oh, you got to see that. I didn't know there was one. Yeah, he does say it in the documentary. He does. Yeah, so he, I can say it because Ayrton said it. Yeah. yeah, right. Okay. All right, we're going back to the Fillmore East. Let's get in the WKCR time machine. It's deep focus on WKCR music from Miles Davis. <laughs> Thank you. 
Sorry, Wayne. We will come right back. But uh, we're going to just take a little moment here in the music to tell you you are listening to WKCRFM New York, WKCRHD. Maybe you're finding us anywhere on the web right now, WKCR.org. You can tell your friends any place if they have a computer, they can find us at WKCR.org. We are 89.9 FM here in New York. If you missed part of the show, you want to hear it next week, download it, take it with you. Or hundreds of other shows, maybe almost as good. You could find us on the Deep Focus podcast on your favorite podcasting app, or I'll give you the URL for the hosting site is mitchgoldman.podbean.com. mitchgoldman.podbean.com. It's all free. Giving it away. No ads. No buttons to push. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman. The show's Deep Focus, and so thankful tonight having Scotty Hard, Stephen Bernstein in the studio, and we're listening to some magnificent music that I never heard, you guys hadn't heard, I'm guessing most of the audience audience had not heard, except for one listener. Yeah. <laughs> who was? <laughs> who uh, was called in, was telling us about uh, having been in the crowd that night, and uh, contrary to what Miles might have said in his autobiography, a bit of a tepid response, apparently, from the audience. But getting a big response here in the studios at WKCR, and, um, well... My goodness, we could start by talking about that explosive solo Miles just dropped. I don't know if I've ever heard him play with more fire than that. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's and it's long and strong, and and it's also I don't know. I'm pretty sure the way it went was he took a solo, and then I don't think Wayne came in. I think it went right to Chick. The, the what we call the circle part. You know, right? right? I yeah. think it went right from Miles to Chick and Dave, like really freaking out. And then Miles and, and Scott even said, "Oh yeah, that wouldn't happen." You know, Tio would have edited that out. Miles, <laughs> right? You know, and then Miles comes in and he starts playing this rhythm that sets up the groove again. I don't know if you checked it out. Miles gets in that thing where he plays that rhythm and sets the band up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He starts that, and then of course that sets the new thing. And then he just takes this second incredible solo. Well, he also he didn't he let into it with that cadence, right? Right. That goes into right. the second part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Does the From, whole, uh, yeah, yeah, in a silent way. Yeah. And I was also thinking about this as when they finally built a bing, do 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 do. Funny because for me, the first time I heard that because I didn't have it in a silent way as a kid, uh, a kid, whatever. It took me. It was not one of the records I had in high school, but um. I got a used copy when I started. To, oh, I don't listen to some San Francisco music when I was about nineteen or twenty, and I got this record, "Last Days of the Fillmore," and Santana does it. Oh, like, sure. Ding, and I was like, "Yo, that's a dope. That's Miles," and that's only a year later. Right. So, sure. So a year after this, now Santana's playing this tune, which is very interesting. Sanctuary. Uh, uh... Whatever it's whatever or is called. it directions? No, the one not no. directions. The one that goes ding. It's ding called ding, in a silent ding, way. Ding, it's uh, might be called in a silent way, or I don't know, man. Santana Uh-oh. playing it. Wow. People, yeah. You know, people are yelling at their radios. They're telling us right now, <laughs> telling us the name of that song oh, yeah, that we're sure. not coming up with. But um, in any case, though, yeah. But that he and that and that and then the repartee between him yeah, and cause Chick. They, yeah, because then they bring it down and then back up again. It's crazy. No, and Miles. Yeah, that's a long, strong trumpet solo is all I have to say. It's about that time. It's about that time, yep. yep. It's about that time. 
Yeah, but then, but this whole thing, I mean, I love the way they are continually shape-shifting and that kind of push-pull tension and ripping it open and squeezing it back down and which they just seem to do at will like there's this uh shared consciousness whether i don't know if miles is signaling for these things or if they're just so on the same page because this band almost in its same form has been playing a lot over the last year yeah i think that they are just doing it by intuition and i don't think miles is doing any visual cues i think they're mostly just Trumpet well, because he does. He, he's sort of well known for not looking at people. But he Look, would do. You do I've seen videos where he like kind of pulls his trumpet down and right. does a cue like that, like make a stop. You know. But yeah, I think obviously he usually just let, like you said, Scott. He hired the right people. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think you said that off mic. But yeah, I think that yeah, he. Oh, I mean, you know, I don't know how many other people in in music in general but in jazz had such a great ear for talent like i mean look at all the people who played with them like the the all they're all legends yeah yeah well this whole band right you know every one of these guys became a band leader yep ayerto may be a notable exception but the rest of them Dude, oh, he had lot. No, he he made lots of records. He made lots yeah. of records, yeah, yeah. and I used to go see him at Keystone Corner when I was in twelfth grade. I saw him a bunch. Did he live in the Bay Area? Or no, something? he lived in L.A. In fact, Ayerto. Oh, okay. So, just our little backstory is that I used to see Ayerto at my my friend uh, Peter, my friend the Engelhart sisters, Cecilia, Claudia, and uh, Nana had. Uh, they were all like around, around my age, and we always used to hang out at their house. And their father, Peter Engelhart made the percussion instruments for Ayerto, for Shelly Mann, for and these metal crashers you see everyone uses. He invented those. He made stuff for the uh, Mickey Hart and made these big, would make sculptures for the playable sculptures for the Grateful Dead. And he's a jazz pianist. So people were always at the house. And Ayerto and Flora were there. And Ayerto said to me, he said, Stephen, so you want to, I heard they say you really want to do this and become a professional musician. This comes back from where he lives, right? So I said, yeah, Ayerto, I, 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 that's why I really want to do this. Is well, let me give you a little bit of advice. He goes, me and Flora have one hit song. So then we went and we bought a house, a big fancy house in Beverly Hills and got a Mercedes. But the thing is, you still have to have payments on that. And then we never had another hit song. <laughs> he said, so whatever you do, as a, if you're a musician, like live in your means. Like just because you make a lot of money once doesn't mean it's going to keep coming. He told me that in 12th grade, and I always thought about that. I always made sure to live like that. Like, Yeah, but I actually lived in L.A., lived in, I think in Beverly Hills, and uh, toured a lot with his band. He had a nice band. What What was the hit? What was he? No, Flora had a hit. Uh, um, that first record on Fantasy was yeah, a okay. Butterfly, Butterfly Dreams, Butterfly, what was it called? Butterfly Dreams was kind of a hit. It wasn't. A, it wasn't like a number one pop hit, but it was a jazz hit record. No, it was a hit record when I was, when I was in high school, at least in the Bay Area. Um, maybe not. Maybe guys in, in uh, <laughs> maybe guys in Lachemont weren't listening to that. <laughs> Probably not. Wow. Well, this. Uh, what else we got to tell the folks about? Well, I'm 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 just shocked that, that this is so good and it was never put out. And I guess they just must have had vaults full of great stuff and and uh, you know recording 
fairly often, so it must have been hard. But this is so intense. Yeah. Like, because I, I haven't listened to uh, Live at the Fillmore for a while, but I know, you know, Bernstein knows that one out back to front. Just instinctually, it's part of his DNA. And I was like, that record isn't as intense as no. this. And he was like, no way. No, yeah. no. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, like, I think it's really, I mean, think about it. I mean, no offense, but, you know, you're going from, like, the intensity of Wayne Shorter, who's, I don't know how long he'd been with Miles at that point. I'm not an expert. Huh. Well, a long, since 62, 60, right? 64, I want to say. But yeah. yeah. So, so you know, he had, and, you know, in all those years with Art Blakey, and Steve Grossman's amazing, but he's being, like, that's a 19-year-old kid, right? I mean, this is Wayne Shorter at the top of his game. I mean, that's pretty it's, intimidating. Yeah, you know, that's really just that. I mean, they're like, not only is Miles playing so strong, but Wayne is playing so and so out and just beautiful and just sonic. It's like already, it's very few notes. It's not so note oriented. It's already getting really sonic oriented. Yeah. And yeah, especially compared to, so like, this is the last gig that Wayne Shorter does with Miles Davis this night and the following night. He's immediately followed by Steve Grossman, who's not uh, stingy with the notes, I'll say. Right, <laughs> he right. really plays and he's a, a lot and of he's a, And he's a kid. He's 18, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a big difference just, just, just you know, kind of uh, on the kind of pout. The, just, yeah, just. But check this out. And maybe the listener can tell us if they know this. Like, did Wayne play with soprano with the quintet before this? I don't know. I mean, we're all saying I don't really recall. No, I don't remember on any records. I mean, maybe live he did. Yeah, maybe someone can call us and say, yeah, was he already, when did Wayne start playing soprano with Miles? Well, he clearly, I don't know if he's anticipating. i got to figure he is. Um, Weather Report, which is just getting started this time, I think that's basically why right. he left Miles, was because right. things were getting going with Zalo. So check this out. So slot. Miles is doing this. The same year Weather Report's being created, the same year Chick and Dave Holland are doing Circle, right? All this is happening at once. Like, this is all, that's a lot of, of powerful new energy in the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, all the other things you could pull into that that's happening at this time. Yeah, that, like Hendrix and Sly and right. all that but other I'm just stuff. Saying that, these, of these guys. Of these guys, but, yeah, yeah, doing variety of things at the same time and but the other thing i want to say we talk about off of this is interesting i'll say that i've been played some with hot tuna the past couple of years so you're standing right next to jack cassidy and you can hear how much i don't know if dave was checking out jack or jack was checking out dave but there's a whole lot of jack cassidy in that bass playing in there man a whole lot of it and they both played with hendrix around they this both time played too. With hendrix around that time yeah 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 but dave holland played with hendrix yeah, in Woodstock, probably up in Woodstock, right? No, I think uh, I want to say Record Plant. Oh, really? Maybe. Wow. Because you know, you know that Dave, you know that Dave is on a track of that the, the the famous Full Moon, the first allegedly the first jazz rock record ever recorded. Go on. Okay, so this was impossible to find before the worldwide interwebs and YouTube and musicians never being paid again in the rest of their life. Now you just have to Google the words Full Moon. But there was a band called Full Moon. Philip Wilson was on drums. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. And mate was maybe uh, Philip Wilson was on drums. I think it was like Buzzy, Buzzy Fighton or Buzzy Linhart, one of the Buzzies guys on guitar, Neil Larson on piano. And it was this kind of legendary band. And they 
but Alan Douglas recorded them for the Douglas label, and then they only printed like a thousand copies, and you could never find it. And and uh, but Dave Holland's on one of the tracks, hmm. so he's hmm. he was definitely crossing into the jazz rock world. Is that in Britain or was that no in, in Woodstock? Oh wow! They were all hmm. living in Woodstock at the time. Philip had been living there, I guess, probably because of uh, Paul the Butterfield Blues right, Band. Yeah, yeah. The, all these guys were like living in Woodstock, and they. St- formed a band and from what people say it was like the first jazz rock band whether it was or not i don't know well you know that prompts me to say a big part of the genesis of deep focus was exactly what you just said about really it's about this whole show is about being there when the music happens it's nice to have these recordings and all your cool little mp3s and sit home but if you want to experience this music you got to be in the room when it's happening right you got to get out of the house and i will say i have not i've been playing gigs but i haven't been hanging and i went to the vanguard last night to hear andrew surreal and uh david virilis and 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 frizzell and um ben street and it was so inspiring and then i went up to smoke and heard steve Touré with nick payton and ron blake buster williams yeah who played wow. with miles and lenny yeah. white who played with miles and great I believe this great young piano player named Isaiah Thompson, I think that's his name, was fantastic. And that was so inspiring. And Buster That's a good room, too. It's a great room. And Buster at 80, I could not believe how Buster was playing. He played so incredible. So, yeah, go out and hear live music. Support live music, people. Yeah. Don't just support live music. Experience live music. Experience live. Thank you. I'm going to go one step beyond that. Create live music. Why not? Because you got to be... Right? I mean, what's live music without the audience? Isn't that like half the show? Uh, more Don't than half they, the show. Right? They're, they're, they're making it happen. Yeah, 55% of the show. Yeah. According to the latest statistics, you got to be out there. you got to be there when it's happening. And somewhere, wherever you are right now, band's getting ready to hit. What are you doing sitting by the radio? <laughs> Get out there. They're on their way to the gig. They're <laughs> okay. in their car. They're right. on their way. I won't give them a hard time then. So uh, if you're just joining us, the show's called Deep Focus. My name is Mitch Goldman, and I've got the great pleasure of being here with Scotty Hard, producer, beat master, Stephen Bernstein. Wait a second. We're on the radio, and we're professionals. We need to plug our record. Yes. Okay. okay. Yes. Scotty. I, I, thought, I, I didn't think that was the focus here, so I was well, the, the, thought the, we would <laughs> sneak it in at some point. Sneak, well, sneak. Yeah, we're deep. <laughs> that is the Mel Brooks line of all time. Sneak, sneak. <laughs> That's from Blazing Saddles. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so Sky and I made uh, Sky and I have been making records together for close to thirty years, and I, um, Sky and I got to record uh, with To with our friend Michael Blake, and we've done all these records, and we have a record out on Corbett versus Dempsey called Sex Mob the Hard Way, and it's really a collaborative effort with uh, Scotty creating the original impetus. Like all the songs came from Scotty's loops originally. I mean, Sky started the whole thing, then we had Sex Mob. And then Scotty did his best to get rid of us. Oh yeah, I couldn't do that. But anyway, uh, if you like, if you like music that, you know, is likable, I would recommend. Yes, um, the hard way. I like also. You guys said uh, did look at your the stuff you guys sent me. Uh, very interesting that the connection with the art gallery and yeah. that that's part of this and maybe you could talk about that a little bit and well, the concept well Corbett versus Dempsey is is an art gallery in Chicago that also puts out records and I met them through my mentor so Sky's mentor is T.O. my mentor was Hal Wilmer 
and uh, they had just re-released Hal's first record, the Nina Rota record, and I met them, and I went on their website, and I didn't know about them. They keep it kind of secret, but if you Google Corbett versus Dempsey and you're a music lover, you're gonna blow your mind's gonna get blown. Because, or a boxing fan. Or a boxing fan, yes. Um, they have available uh, incredible music by uh, Sun Ra, Lester Bowie, um, Olu Dara, D- incredible Don Cherry stuff. Um, Van Dyke Parks. Van Dyke Parks. They have the um, some some that Don Pollen. I believe it's it's the Don Pollen and Milford record that was yep. so hard to find. Just all these incredible records with beautiful packaging. Um, and Bobby. That, what? Bobby. Bobby. Which Bobby? The uh, is that the record? The uh, anyway. Oh, is that the name of the Milford? record? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I, 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 no, now I if know. If it's the same one, mm. yeah. I assume it's the same one. Yeah. Yeah, that was out of print for a million yeah, for, years. Yeah. So they yeah. they really special. And they also put out books of Sunrise poetry. And incredible, and they just have a they just had an exhibition of Roscoe Mitchell's art, and they have, of course, they did the thing of a beautiful book on um, Moki Cherry's art and great stuff with Dawn, and uh, Scott and I had Scott had made these incredible record. I was like, where do we put this? Because you know, with Sex Mom, it's like, where do we fit? You know, we're a lot too, you know, a little too in your face for most jazz recordings, and we're too old to be like the next big thing, right? We were in the, that was a long time ago, so I was like, "Well, where does this belong?" And I, I just sent it to them, and literally the next morning they were like, "We'll put this out in a heartbeat." Yeah, because Stephen said, "Oh my God, like I want we've got to be on this label. Like, look at all the guys that are on this label, and look what they do, and we've we've got to be there." And and I'm like, "Yeah, okay, cool." And, uh, understanding the sort of shortcomings, and like six months later, he's like, "You know." These guys aren't really a record label, and I'm like, no, I'm familiar. <laughs> I'm well aware of that. that. That's true because they are, but they also gave but us. That's kind of what makes them cool. Yeah, and and they have they and they like so they also don't care because they're art label. They're not so caring about selling records. They care about making art. So they, you know, it's a beautiful, really thick vinyl with a, a beautiful cover, and they hire one of their favorite artists to make a really incredible cover. And, you know, they're really concerned with, like, the fact that it feels like a piece of art. Like, that's part of what they do. They're way more concerned about that than if it gets out in time or if there's publicity. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and how, if somebody, uh, how do people find it? What's the best way to get it? Go to Bandcamp or go to Corbett versus Dempsey's website. And, I, yeah, I think they're also selling the record on... Oh, Dusty Groove. Dusty Groove. Yeah, Dusty Groove. Well. Yeah. Bandcamp, Dusty Groove, Corbett versus Dempsey website, or a meet you know meet me and Scott at like you know the back the trunk of the car and we'll sell like exactly. that. Exactly, <laughs> we've got some for you. And and just a slight aside about talking about getting out and going to gigs and which is uh, I don't do gigs very often and I I went on stage with Sex Mob for the release party which was a great honor and um, I was like yeah. I've been recording Kenny for over 25 years, but I've never been that close to him. And That is part two from August 7th, 2023. Scotty Hard, Stephen Bernstein in the studio with me, your host, Mitch Goldman, a deep focus on Miles Davis. There's three parts. So if you haven't heard the other two parts, by all means, seek them out. And if you haven't subscribed 
to this podcast, I'm going to make you a special offer. If you subscribe now, you will get the first 30 days for free, followed by free forever, because it's always free. It's never not free. It's always free. But if you sign up now for the next 90 days, it'll be ad free because it's always ad free. So sign up and then you'll get a little notification when a new show pops up. You just sign up on your favorite podcasting app or you can come to the hosting site, which is mitchgoldman.podbean.com. Let me also tell you that uh, you can email us. We are deep focused now at gmail.com deep focus now at gmail.com you can also find out more about the show at the hosting not the hosting site i gave you the hosting site is mitchgoldman.podbean.com there's also some other information at my personal site mitchgoldman.com pull down the about deep focus tab and you'll get a little more data and there's a search bar in there you can look up past episodes uh this is scotty hart's first time on the show with me but uh, Bernstein's been on the show with me before. We've done some great ones. And um, and we've done, I'd say Miles Davis is probably the most popular artist among our guests. So, but you could tell me, you could look it up and find that out. You can also follow us along on Instagram. It is deep focus podcast, deep underscore focus underscore podcast on Instagram and uh, you'll find some fellow lovers of your favorite kind of music there and photos of these artists and uh, more upcoming announcements when stuff's scheduled. So yeah, yeah, it's your show. We really want you to be part of it. And uh, if you're enjoying it, really makes such a difference when you subscribe and give us some likes and thumbs up and what, what, what. People do not know about this show. A handful of people. We are world famous. We're in 115 countries. We have people listening to us, but (laughs) very few numbers. You'd be amazed if you click something or like something. I'm going to see it. And I really want to see it. I really would love to hear what your experience is of this show. And, uh, you know, if you don't feel like sharing, just click that little click. It really means the world. All right. Go on about your day. See you over at part three.